You're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. A few years ago, when Gogo was 24 and living in her own apartment in Beijing, she got a phone call from her mom with a login and a password to an online dating site. And there, Gogo found a profile that her mom had set up for her. It had her photo, her bio, and an inbox full of conversations with guys that she had never met. I'm quite shocked because she's using my name. She's misusing my name. This had been going on in secret for months. Her mom set up the account, then messaged with guys pretending to be her daughter. One guy sent a photo of himself playing basketball. Her mom had written back, why do those shorts look like a skirt? Another time, a guy said he was going to Turkey. Her mom said, don't be foolish. My mom said, Turkey is very, very dangerous right now. How did these guys not realize this was a mom? I mean, I will never say something like that. This is like, she pretending what I will say, but it's totally not me. (laughs) Did you tell your mom, hey, take this down? Several times. That doesn't work. Sometimes she even promised me that I will not do this again. But maybe one or two weeks later, she said, hey, I found another guy. Do you want to know him? This was just the start of a year when Gogo would begin to question who she was and what her family and her society expected of her. The reason we know about Gogo's story is that she told it on a podcast in China. Our producer, Jess Jang, has been listening to the show. The podcast is called Gushi FM, which means Story FM. It's an independent podcast out of Beijing. Listeners sometimes call in to share their stories. That's how Gogo got on the show. And I got curious about this podcast because there aren't that many places in China where people can speak frankly in public. The Chinese government has shut down hundreds of thousands of blog posts and social media accounts in the last year for stirring up social unrest. But this podcast seems to somehow be able to get around that censorship. I'm Gregory Warner. This is Rough Translation from NPR, the show that takes you to far-off places with stories that hit close to home. Here in our radio show, we try to keep up with podcasts around the world to hear how people in other countries are talking to each other. Today on the show, we're going to share two stories, one from China, the other from Israel. Two stories about how the search for love can make us strangers to ourselves. Rough translation, back after this break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Delta. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where many people do the same things you do. That's 300 cities where people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. And 300 cities where people miss someone in one of Delta's other 299 cities. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring people together, but to show that we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. Queer Eyes Karamo Brown still remembers what his teacher said years ago on his first day at a new school. What kind of name is that? Mm. And I remember just shrinking in my seat and feeling like I don't want to be different. The stories behind the celebrity. Every Tuesday on It's Been a Minute from NPR. We're back with NPR's Rough Translation. When you think about China's rise from one of the poorest economies in the world to the second largest, it's 
also meant a huge change in the lives of women. Chinese women in their 20s and 30s are better educated than men their age. They earn a bigger percentage of China's GDP than women in North America do. And Gogo is part of this trend. The way she put it to me was that she was raised in a Western way. She moves to college without her parents helping her. She gets an internship without her parents helping her. She moves to do the internship without her parents helping her. To the big city of Beijing. Right. And she says she always felt like her mom wanted her to be independent. From her perspective, the independence she gave to me, this is to make me a better person, a strong person. Then, suddenly, when she hits the age of 24, she's back in China after getting her master's degree in the States. And her mom is telling her, all this freedom I gave you has led you the wrong way. She's so much worried about me. She she thought that I'm so poor. No one is carrying me. I have to do all the things by my own. While Gogo was in the USA getting her degree, her mom in China was hearing reports on TV, reading in the newspaper about this rash of unmarried women. Women in their 20s and 30s, said to be too picky, too spoiled to settle down. They were called shongnu, so leftover women, as if there's an expiration date that these women have passed. But if you dig into the phrase, you find out that what China was worried about was not the unmarried women at all. It was lots of unmarried men, because the one-child policy in China over a generation had led to a surplus of young men, and too many single men in a country spells social unrest. And so the Chinese government was pushing the message, you women have a deadline to get married. I heard about that deadline from my extended family when I visited China, that I need to be married by age 25. So this is Gogo telling her story on the podcast. Her mom is a very persistent person. Gogo says there are tears and yelling. And Gogo's not really used to her mom being involved in her life this much. And so she thinks, I'm just going to go on a few dates, talk to some guys, and tell her it didn't work out. So she decides to talk to one guy, just on text. Mm -hmm. And she casually asks him what he does to exercise. His answer is, I've already told you, it was on my profile. I jog. Oh, he was offended that she didn't do the research on him. Yeah, yeah. And she just thought it was like a really aggressive answer. She just ignores him. His response is, communicating with you is just so hard. And so her response is, ha, 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 yeah, I feel the same way. And so then she unfriends him on WeChat, after which he starts barraging her with insults. Who do you think you are? You think because you left the country, you're something extra? This is just one guy on the internet. But it's really upsetting to her. She's never done online dating before. Her mom basically pushed her into talking to this guy. So she tries to unregister from that online dating site. But it turns out to unregister, you need two-factor authentication. But the two-factor authentication was with her mom's cell phone. 
So she has to convince her mom to unregister. Her mom says, "I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to force you into doing this." Then, literally days after her mom pledges never again. She's on a new site, again making a profile, again chatting up guys for Gogo to go on a date with. And she's asking Gogo, "Hey, how is it going with this guy or that guy?" Because she has chatted with them first. Yeah, and and her mom also gives them nicknames. There's Xiongheize, who comes from the same hometown as Gogo. So she keeps asking her, "How's it going, Xiongheize?" And then there's a guy who says he works for J.P. Morgan. He works for J.P. Morgan. Yeah, J.P. Morgan guy. Her mom figures they're both in finance. They'll have a lot to talk about. These guys are all in Gogo's social class. They went to top universities like she did. And her mom is thinking that these points of connection are enough. Gogo isn't feeling any chemistry with these guys. She usually ends things after a few dates. But when she complains to her friends and to her mom, she realizes no one is expecting her to be looking for love. Some of my friends, I'm very shocked. They also hold such kind of opinion that love has nothing to do with marriage. Marriage has nothing to do with love. These are two separate things. Her friends tell her, "Don't worry about chemistry. If your backgrounds are compatible, it'll work." They said marriage means that as long as his background. It's fine. Then you can get into marriage. I don't agree on this. She says, my mom starts asking me, "What is your problem? What is your issue?" She says, "I was really close with my mom, but because I can't find a a husband, have I fallen so far in my mom's eyes?" Am I lacking? When she started this whole thing of online dating, she mainly did it to appease her mom. She hadn't expected or really intended for any of these dates to work out. But now, after date after date not working out, it felt like proof that there was something wrong with her, something to be ashamed of. So her mom decides she needs professional help. She takes her to an office in a fancy part of Beijing to meet a matchmaker. The woman tells Gogo, "You don't have to wonder if something's wrong with you. There is definitely something wrong with you." But you don't have to be afraid because we can help you. We have an all-encompassing counseling service. It's called the Gold Tier, and it's like a group dating mixer with 49 pre-selected guys. 49 because seven times seven, and seven is a lucky number in China. And for just fifteen thousand U.S. dollars, Gogo can join this group. And have her own coach, who will not only help her meet her match, but even go further than that, with this guarantee of quality assurance. The quality assurance service. They said that even if you two get married during the marriage, if you have any issues, the consultant will coach you to maintain a 
good relationship. So they'll continue to help you. So like if you have a fight in your marriage about who's taking out the garbage, they'll help you solve that problem. Yeah, something like that. Professional matchmaking services are on the rise in China. As marriage rates have declined, there are more single people. And $15,000 is by far not the high price point of what these places charge. Gogo's mom considers hiring this matchmaker. And Gogo's in this moment is thinking, how did I get here? I was this independent woman who could do all of these things on her own, and now I'm this $15,000 problem. Gogo told us when she decided to tell this story on the Chinese podcast, she was worried about saying anything too critical or too challenging of social norms. Like, how much of a woman's decision to get married in China should be based on fulfilling some social duty and how much should be based on what she wants to do. So many episodes on this podcast seem to edge right up to a debate that's happening in Chinese society, but in a way that does not trigger the censors. Like, there's an episode from a guy in Taiwan describing the compulsory military service there. And he talks pretty frankly about what it feels like to one day be a student, the next day a soldier, what it's like to practice with live grenades. He never questions why Taiwan has needed a universal draft, because that would mean talking about tensions between Taiwan and mainland China. Another episode is from a guy who's selected for jury duty in the United States, and he looks around at the other jurors. They're mostly immigrants like him. He never directly compares the judicial systems in the U.S. and China. But see, this is why it's brilliant, because it could be a quiet critique. But it gets through the censors because it's raising questions in people's minds without necessarily answering them. So, for instance, on the podcast, Gogo never uses the phrase leftover women. She doesn't question the expectations put on her. And she doesn't give all the details of how she managed to find her happy ending. Which is that her mom's friend introduced her to a guy that her mom doesn't think that much of. From her understanding, it's just not my cup of tea. The guy is not financially successful. He didn't go to the best university. He's not a guy with the best background. But when Gogo meets him, he's washed his car, he's planned the date. He doesn't expect her to be the only one showing interest, and she doesn't have to work to be open. They date for six months, they fall in love, and he proposes, and they're celebrating their third anniversary this year. Today on Rough Translation, we are sharing episodes from international podcasts, all on the theme of love. This next story is from a different country. It's about a different kind of love. It's also, though, about someone trying to figure out what she owes her family and what she owes herself. It comes from the podcast Israel Story. One day I walking around the dance class and I meet Indana. Okay, so first we met, right? Yeah. At the dance place. Journalist Donna Harmon tells the tale. What did you say? Hi. What did I say? You say hi. That time is your last day in Nepal. And then I went home to Israel. Yeah. That's my favorite 14-year-old in the world, Monisa. Monisa Guru. We met in Nepal three years ago, outside a Zumba class in a Kathmandu slum. And if that sounds random, well, a lot of things about the story I'm about to tell are. 
It was early April, and I'd been in the country for a month, working on a story for my newspaper. The story was done, and I was leaving for Tel Aviv early that morning. But then, my flight was delayed by six hours. And just like that, I had a whole extra morning free and no plans at all. I decided to go for a walk and headed to my favorite place in the dusty capital, the so-called Monkey Temple, perched high up on a hill. I'd come here often before, circling the temple's base and spinning the prayer wheels. That particular morning, though, instead of huffing up the steep steps to the Buddhist shrines, I wandered off into a nearby crowded neighborhood. Around me was a hum of activity. People selling mobile phone covers and bunches of parsley, incense, prayer candles, old people brushing their teeth on the sides of the road, monkeys rummaging through the trash, and flea-ridden dogs lying around in the middle of the path. That's when I heard the salsa music. I followed the beat and discovered a crowded basement filled with sweaty Nepalis and spandex doing salsa moves. And, standing next to me, also peering in, were three little girls. Their obvious ringleader was this pint-sized kid in raggedy polka-dot pants and no shoes. Her name was Monisa, she said. I had vaguely been planning on going to the other side of the monkey temple, to an outdoor swimming pool I knew there. So after a few minutes at the underground Zumba class, I made some breaststroke pantomime motions to the little girls by way of explanation, and then pressed my hands together in prayer. That was goodbye. Namaste. But the girls followed me. They were sisters, they said, or I thought they said, as we walked away. 11-year-old Monisa, 10-year-old Obika, and 9-year-old Obika. Wait, you have the same name and your sisters, I asked? Yes, they nodded, and they laughed, and I laughed. Anyway, with Obika and Obika on either side of me reaching up to hold my hands, we walked along. The girls seemed excited, as kids with nothing to do can be when suddenly walking alongside a foreigner, a white one no less. Other children with heavy book bags on their backs, who seemed to be on their way to school, yelled out, Hey, where are you going? To which Manisa answered back, We're with her. I swam laps while the three sat upright on a nearby bench, watching me go back and forth and yelling out numbers. One lap, two, three. By ten, they had exhausted their knowledge of English. Eleven, they yelled out in Nepali. Afterwards, Monisa, Obika, and Obika walked me back to my guesthouse, a few windy dirt lanes away. I gave them some stuff I didn't need. Flip-flops, a water bottle, a duffel bag which had been a gift from a trekking company. Monisa asked me if I had any money to give her. Or maybe she didn't ask me for money. I'm not sure. I half pretended I didn't understand. Then, when I asked her where her mom was, she said, Gone. Or maybe she didn't say that at all, but at the time I thought she did. Just as we were saying goodbye, I gave Monisa a slightly frayed business card, the last one in my wallet. It was a strange thing to do. I was living in Israel and I write for an Israeli newspaper, so my card is in Hebrew, which she obviously couldn't read. She didn't read English either. I'm not sure she actually read too well at all. But there was a phone number on the card and an email address, too, and I told Monisa that if, by chance, she and the others ever found themselves in a cyber cafe, they could ask someone to show them how to send an email, and they could get in touch if they wanted to. My new little friend thanked me and tucked the card away solemnly. We both felt, I think, a little sad to part. I snapped a photo of the three girls before I left, and on the flight home, I turned that photo into the screensaver on my mobile. 
That too was a strange thing to do. After all, I barely knew them. That trip to Nepal had come at the end of a tough year for me. I'd done several rounds of IVF, all of which were unsuccessful. I was feeling okay on the one hand, and then again deeply sad on the other. Regretful of roads I'd not taken, paralyzed when it came to choices I still felt I had to make, and worried I would always feel and be regarded as incomplete if I didn't have children. I had hoped that month in Nepal, which coincided with my 45th birthday, would be a time to get some energy back. I was craving space to come to terms with the fact that I was not going to be a biological mother. Over my actual birthday weekend, I left Kathmandu to join a yoga and meditation retreat at a monastery. Could I get more cliché? The vegan food was good, and the little monks playing soccer on the grounds were definitely cute. But my body hurt from sitting cross-legged for hours, and the old Tibetan monk teacher going on and on about the self bored me somehow. One evening, I snuck away from the meditation session and spent a pretty blissful hour surfing Facebook while hiding in the bathroom on the mobile phone I was supposed to have handed in, happily liking everyone's birthday wishes to me. A five-day trek in the rainy Annapurna mountains at the end of the Nepal trip didn't get me anywhere either. Unlike most trekkers who wax poetic about their Sherpa guides, mine drove me crazy. He had all these silly gag jokes, like he kept pretending to tumble over the side of the cliff. And he asked me if I could schlep his sleeping bag because he had no more room in his rucksack. I would say that I spent most of my hiking hours calculating how long it had been since I'd last looked at my watch. Back in Tel Aviv, after it was all over, sipping a café afouche in my neighborhood café, it was clear to me that, despite the weeks I'd been away, the loop of questions going round and round in my head about motherhood and happiness hadn't gone anywhere at all. Was it time to give up on being a mother? Exactly a week to the day after I met Monisa and her two Obika sidekicks and returned home, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake shook Nepal. This is the moment the earthquake struck. The earthquake in Nepal. For a devastating natural disaster. It was an earthquake, guys. It was an earthquake. Whole villages were wiped out. Thousands of schools and hospitals were destroyed. Millions were left homeless. And over 8,000 people were killed. And that's when she started calling. I remember the first time I saw the Nepal country code flash up on my mobile and heard this tiny, faraway voice on the other end of the line. It didn't seem real, but it was. The local phone companies had given everyone in Nepal unlimited free calls in the weeks following the earthquake, in the somewhat futile hope that if someone was buried in the rubble but didn't have any phone credit, they might yet be able to save themselves with a free call for help. Monisa took advantage and, using a neighbor's mobile one time and a relative's another, would ring me. She always seemed to want to stay on the line and chat, but we couldn't communicate much. I understood that Gorka, her family village in the countryside, had been at the epicenter of the quake and was broken, as she put it. The rented room she'd been shacked up in with her cousins in Kathmandu was also broken. I would ask her if it was raining. It always was. If school was open, it wasn't. And if she was even registered at school, unclear. Then, when we ran out of things to say, I would tell her not to be scared and that everything would be okay. I also told her that I would help. 
though of course I had no idea how I could actually do that. The daydreams started hazily, drifting in and out of my head. Then they began to take on a shape and intensity of their own. Maybe it was fate, I thought to myself. Maybe I was meant to connect with Monisa and her sisters. They needed me right now, and I needed them. My imagination started running wild. What if? What if I could adopt all three and bring them back to Israel? I could turn my extra room into a kid's room, enroll them in the day school up the road where my friend Einat sends her kids. I would take them to the same swimming class as my sister-in-law takes my niece over at the Gordon Pool. I would drive them back to my parents for Friday night dinners, and I would read them books before they went to sleep. I didn't tell anyone what was going on in my head. I was embarrassed. Of course, I knew better than to think that one can just go to a poor foreign country hit by natural disaster and simply scoop up a needy kid. I'd been a journalist for over 20 years and had traveled the world. Africa, South America, and wars in Afghanistan, Iraq. I'd seen a lot of kids in need over the years. Orphaned kids, starving kids, lost kids. Sometimes I would write an article about them, and sometimes I would snap a photo. My heart would always ache a little, or a lot, but either way, I would always say goodbye. But this time, something felt different. My dreams about Monisa just wouldn't go away. Nepal is far away, and there was no easy or inexpensive way for me to get back there. My editors had already sent someone else to cover the aftermath of the earthquake and had assignments for me in Israel. And I'd been planning to move to London to live with my boyfriend Josh. So there was all that, as well as the more mundane to-do list involving already paid-for Pilates classes, dinner plans, car stuff, health stuff, a life in brief. So it was not surprising that a lot of people raised their eyebrows when I announced that I was taking time off and flying back to Kathmandu. I felt the need to explain myself, which was hard to do. My mom couldn't fathom why I would want to go to a country just as all the foreigners were trying to flee and aftershocks were ongoing. That, and she could also probably sense that I'd built up unspoken expectations about Monisa. Maybe she didn't want me to get hurt. My dad pointed out that there were hundreds of thousands of children who needed help in Nepal, and that NGOs and UN bodies, who supposedly know what to do in this kind of crisis, were already on the ground. What exactly did I think I was going to be able to do, he asked, gently. All this I heard and set off. I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of NPR's Hidden Brain. Think deeply. Here to tell you about our summer series, U2.0. Ideas and advice about how you can respond to life's chaos. Let's do a just check to my inbox. Just check, just check, just check to my phone real quick. With wisdom. Listen to Hidden Brain every week. We're back with Rough Translation from NPR and back to our story as Donna Harmon returns to Nepal after the earthquake. Back in battered Kathmandu, a mere two and a half weeks after I'd left it, neither the city nor the story I'd written up in my head about the girls ended up being as expected. It was like some dystopian movie where buildings and temples you know should be on this block or that corner are just gone, reduced to heaps of concrete and metal. There were bedraggled families wandering the roads, still looking for friends and relatives, trying to find shelter. The rain was pouring nonstop, and all those once sleepy dogs were howling endlessly. 
the girls? The two younger ones, the suspiciously identically named Obika and Obika, were not in the capital anymore, having fled back to their ancestral villages in the countryside. And it turns out they were not sisters, just neighbors. I should have known. Monisa, though, she was right there. And she actually did have a sister, but an older one, Monica, a stranger to me. My ideas about Monisa and who she was and what I could be to her needed to be further readjusted when it turned out that not only did she have a sister, but she had parents, too. There was Dad, an ex-soldier who seemed jovial to me and who was the one who had brought the girls to the city when he came there looking for work. And Mom, a small young woman, years younger than her husband, who tended the family plot of land in Gorka and who'd given birth to Monica and Monisa when she herself was a mere child. The whole family, together with hundreds of others in the slum who'd lost their homes, were camped out in the pouring rain on a basketball court amidst the rubble of a collapsed school. Monisa seemed far more subdued when I saw her after the quake. Her eyes bloodshot from lack of sleep and her jet black shiny hair was matted. All the family's meager possessions were buried under rubble and the winds had blown away a makeshift tent they had received from an aid organization. There was no electricity, no running water, and little to eat. Traumatized by the earthquake, kids would start screaming when they felt even the slightest aftershock. Maybe I had misunderstood when Monisa told me her mother was gone. Or maybe Monisa wanted something from me, be it money or love, as much as I'd wanted something from her and so had created that misunderstanding on purpose. Whatever the case, if anything was now clear, it was that this little girl I'd been secretly daydreaming of adopting didn't need a mom. What she needed was a new tent, and maybe some rice and beans and a camping stove. Okay, I thought, I could help with that. I stayed in Kathmandu for a month that time, playing a role that fell somewhere between camp counselor, cash machine, and a one-woman non-governmental emergency aid organization. Or rather, that's probably how it looked from the outside. To me, and I want to think to Monisa and her sister too, it felt like a version of falling in love. We spent a lot of every day together having mini adventures in the collapsed city and finding more and more to make us happy despite the tragedy. We climbed around the city's temples, many of them destroyed by the quake so that the girls could light candles and make pujas or prayers for the earth to stop shaking. We stood in a long line for a new tent for them to sleep under, and then, when that one blew away too, set out to get another one. We went to a bookstore and chose some books, and as schools began reopening, I began to push for them to find somewhere to study. Monisa spent days preparing for the entrance exam for one school, which she then failed, miserably. I wanted to let her down gently, but Monica told her straight out that she only got seven points out of a hundred, leading to a torrent of tears. On a Skype call from London, Josh's then nine-year-old son Noah tried to cheer her up. Math is impossible, he insisted. He too was terrible at geography, he added. We looked into another school, where the headmaster ran away with our deposit. And then, finally, after some of my Nepali friends who knew what they were doing got involved, we found the right place. I bought Monisa glasses so she could see the blackboard. Soon, with their mom's blessing, the girls started staying over on the spare bed in my hostel. At night, after playing on my laptop, they would put on the free eye masks I'd gotten from Turkish Airlines and fall immediately into a deep sleep. Nothing seemed to rouse them. Not dogs barking, roosters making a racket, 
thunder and lightning, nothing. In the mornings, I made them brush their teeth and then would take them out together with their mom sometimes or a friend for breakfast. Fried bread and milky sweet tea, boiled vegetables, and a steaming plate of buffalo momos or dumplings, which they slurped down with wildly hot sauce. Every day, we walked over to the mall to see if the movie theater on its second floor had reopened yet. When it finally did, we got tickets to see the only film playing. It was The Avengers in 3D. None of us could understand the first thing about the plot. And the girls, overexcited by the combination of their first time in the theater, the superheroes flying straight at them, and an overdose of cotton candy, fell asleep within minutes. When the local swimming pool reopened, I bought the girls a membership and tried to teach them the breaststroke. And then we whiled away many afternoons, splashing around the shallow end with a group of young Tibetan nuns in training. That's probably the most lasting image I have from that trip. Monisa, holding hands with a pint-sized girl with a shaved head, both of them wearing ill-fitted bathing suits, goggles askew, laughing so hard I worried they might drown. What's the name of your school? Kathmandu Valley High Secondary School in Sakrapat. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And how is that school? It's a good one? Yes, that school is so good. Big uh, ground, basketball also, swimming pool also. Yeah. <laughs> And what is your good subjects? What are you good at at school? Oh, dancing. <laughs> dancing a lot. I, lo I love dancing. I fast in dance. You're number one in yes, dancing? No yes. way. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What fast. kind of dancing? Traditional dancing? Disco yeah, dancing? Traditional. Traditional. It's now three years later and my birthday again, 48 this time, and I'm back in Nepal. It's my fourth trip back here. It's not that I love being in Kathmandu so much, to be honest. It can be hard going. The potholed roads are clogged with honking cars and motorcycles, all of them leaving clouds of black exhaust in their wake. It's hot, dust swirls in the air, and it's rare to see blue sky at this time of the year. Even the novelty of the monkeys who roam wild has long worn off. But there's a girl here I love, and I'm here because of her. This year, I came to visit with Josh and his son, and the whole group of us went rafting down the Trishuli River, together with Susma, the girl's mother. That was a big hit. To celebrate my birthday, we drove out to Gorka, which is finally showing signs of bouncing back after the quake. We threw a makeshift party with Monisa's extended family. We actually picked them up, aunts, uncles, cousins, all 21 of them, in our minivan to get to the venue. It was like a circus trick. We spent the evening eating dalbat, or rice with beans, with our hands, as is customary, and toasting each other with homemade alcohol provided by their grandma. Monisa was in charge of the DJing. Meanwhile, at the Kathmandu Valley Boarding School, where the girls now study and live, Monica has just graduated 10th grade. She was given the Best Athlete Award in the end-of-the-year ceremony. Monisa, after repeating year seven, is struggling along. Academics have proved a little hard for her. This year, she came in at the bottom of her class again. So Josh, the girl's mom, and I gathered together in the principal's room on parent-teacher day to discuss a plan of action. There was Susma, wearing her best dress and clutching the little handbag I'd given her, and me wearing a little string necklace with a bean lace through it that Susma had given me. All of us trying to figure out what to do. No big deal, Josh and I try and tell Monisa, who's slumped down on a stool holding back tears. I feel Susma might cry too. Look at the bright side, I suggest. 
Monisa's not bad in math. She's a star on the school's dance team, and she has sweet friends. She's eating properly at school and has gained weight since I met her. She looks pretty and healthy. Josh is all about finding a tutor to help with some private classes. Susma is worried we'll stop paying for school if Monisa can't keep up. We assure her that won't happen. It'll work out, we say. And so it will. For a while, I thought about getting Monisa and Monica to come visit me in Israel. I managed to organize passports for them. Did you have a passport? Yes, I have a passport. And when can you come visit me? Mm, after... <laughs> no idea. Me? No idea yes. either. Yeah. But then got stumped by the visa process. Yeah. yeah. We need to get a visa. Visa, yeah. Yeah. So difficult, no? Very difficult. Yeah, that's why. Monisa's dad left Nepal soon after the earthquake, setting off to Malaysia to find work as a laborer. He doesn't send any money back home, which is hard and unusual. Susma left the village and moved to Kathmandu, where she found a job cutting chicken in a small market stall. She can now afford to rent a small room, which she shares with a rotating cast of relatives, and even has a little money to spare. I don't want and can't afford for Monisa's family to think of me as a bank. But the little Josh and I do send seems to go such a long way, it never fails to astonish me. We wire about $4,000 a year to the boarding school and then provide the girls with some extra cash to cover things like school uniforms and books, underwear, toothbrushes, sheets, pillows. That's it. I try to get the girls to write me letters, but they don't. Instead, they send me Facebook messages from the internet cafe or from their mom's mobile when they're back in Kathmandu during holidays. Sometimes I call the mobile phone of Doma Lama, who's the house mother at their school. Monisa and Monica, who know to expect my call, stand by. The conversations are still somewhat limited, but are improving, along with Monisa's English. If she's sick, she coughs into the phone to illustrate. If she makes a new friend, she describes her. Or if someone's mean to her, she tells me that, too. We send each other lots of air kisses, and sometimes we just stay on the line, not saying too much at all, until Doma Lama asks for her mobile back. Missing you very much, Monisa will say, her syntax still a little wonky. I miss you too, I tell her. And I do. I could have bumped into a thousand different kids that day in the slum. One of Monisa and Monica's neighbors, a spunky little girl with a nose ring, asked me once, why them? Another kid informed me that Monisa's not special, she's not even good at school. There is no rhyme or reason to why it was Monisa. Maybe there is some fate involved, as I once thought. More probably, it's just random. Our lives and stories intertwined for a moment. And then, because that moment happened to be exactly right for each of us independently, we tied a knot. Today's show was produced by Jess Jang and Autumn Barnes. Edited by Sana Krasikov. Thanks also to Karen Duffin and NPR's Beijing correspondent Emily Fang. And also, thank you to the host of Guzhi FM, Ko Aizhe. Donna Harmon's story on almost adopting in Nepal was edited by Julie Subrin. Original music composed and performed by Ari Weinig. Selah Weissblum mixed the piece. Israel's Story is a wonderful podcast. It tells true stories about regular people living in Israel. You can check out their newest season at israelstory.com. Their Rough Translation executive team is Neil Carruth, Chris Turpin, Will Dobson, and Anya Grunman. Mastering by Andy Huther. John Ellis composed music for our show. Liza Yeager scored the episode. 
Aaron Register is our project manager. We'd always love to hear from you at roughtranslation@npr.org or on Twitter at Roughly. I'm Gregory Warner, back in two weeks with more Rough Translation.